When I was in high school, I took a driver's ed course, but the teacher actually made it really interesting, and he talked a lot about the different kinds of trouble you could get into as a driver if you didn't understand certain things like the difference between a right and a privilege. For example, if you hit a pedestrian with your car, it's pretty much always your fault because people have a right to walk around. There's no right to drive. Walking is a right, but driving is a privilege. And it got me thinking about plant-based drugs like marijuana and mushrooms. If you're walking around in the woods and you see one of these and you decide you want to eat it, does it make sense that that's illegal? Don't you have a right to eat a plant? I don't eat or ingest or smoke any of these kinds of substances, but kind of got me thinking about it. One young man, Ross Ulbricht, thought everybody should be able to. And as a result, he is now in prison for life. Welcome to How Hacks Happen, where we explore the many kinds of happenings in the cybersphere. In this episode, I'm going to talk about Silk Road, a marketplace that sold illegal drugs on the internet for a couple of years, from January 2011 until October 2013, when the FBI shut it down and sent its founder, Ross Ulbricht, to prison. The story of Ross Ulbricht and the Silk Road website has been covered by a lot of news outlets and books and podcasts over the years. But in talking to my listeners, I found that a lot of you don't know that much about it, and I thought you'd find it interesting. It's not just a story of a drug dealer who got caught. It's a lot more than that. It's the story of a smart guy a highly educated kid from a loving family, no criminal record, but with beliefs about society that led him to believe that a website where anyone could buy or sell anything, anything at all, even if it was illegal, was a good idea. A positive idea. One that would help society as a whole. I should warn you that there is some pretty heavy subject matter in this episode. There's descriptions of some violent activities and drug use. So listen at your own discretion. Two of the things that made the Silk Road website possible were the Tor browser and Bitcoin. The Tor browser is an internet browser like Chrome or Firefox where you can go to different websites and look around or buy things, but your activity is totally anonymous and it can't be traced back to you. It's also a browser that gives access to a part of the internet called the dark web, which consists of certain websites that you can access only if you use Tor. There's an episode about Tor where I talk about the origins of Tor and how it works, so you can always go back and listen to that episode. The other thing that made the Silk Road website possible is Bitcoin. Bitcoin is an anonymous way to buy and sell things. It's an anonymous currency. I go over Bitcoin in the Bitcoin and Blockchain episode in Season 1, so if you want to know more about Bitcoin and how it works, definitely go back and listen to that episode. But if you want to keep listening to just hear more about Silk Road, you can just accept that Bitcoin is a way to pay for things online that's as anonymous as paying cash at a store that doesn't have any surveillance cameras and where the cashier has a terrible memory and will never remember your face. So that's what Bitcoin is good for, it's for buying stuff anonymously online. 
By the time Ross Ulbricht launched the Silk Road website, Tor had been around for more than a decade, and Bitcoin had been around for a few years. Ross saw an opportunity there, a way to put his political beliefs into play. Ross Ulbricht grew up in a home where his parents encouraged discussions of politics, particularly libertarianism. The cornerstone of libertarianism is that people should have the right to make their own decisions about their lives with minimal interference from the government. Ross's parents, particularly his father, liked to discuss libertarianism philosophy at the dinner table. And on the surface, libertarianism has some merit. For example, one idea is that there should be no such thing as a victimless crime. Like public drunkenness, for example. If you're walking down the street while you're drunk and you're not bothering anyone, that shouldn't be a crime. There is some argument for that. And also things like a landlord having the right to rent or not rent to a particular person, or an employer can hire someone or fire them for whatever reason they deem fit. Now, in a society of sane people who make good decisions, a society without racism or sexism or any kind of prejudice at all, this type of system could actually work. But we don't really live in such a society, so libertarianism falls down in that regard. But Ross, being young and idealistic, he was a believer. And while he was at Penn State, he joined a libertarian group. So far, this is all normal student stuff. When you're a college student, it's normal to explore different philosophies and get into these long midnight discussions with your friends about the nature of the universe and all that kind of thing. Something that's also pretty normal for students, at least in North America, is to try recreational drugs. While Ross was a student, he smoked marijuana sometimes, and he took magic mushrooms sometimes, too. For some of my more sheltered listeners, I will explain. There are lots of different kinds of mushrooms in the world, and some are tasty in a salad, and some are poisonous and will kill you, and some just cause you to get high and have hallucinations. Those are magic mushrooms. So Ross is smoking and ingesting these naturally occurring plants, marijuana and mushrooms. And he's like, why are these illegal? I should have a choice of what to put in my body. After getting his master's degree, he goes back to his hometown of Austin, Texas. He tries starting a few businesses, but they don't work out. So then he gets this idea. He'll start a marketplace on the dark web, on tour. It will be like eBay, but people will be able to buy and sell anything they want whether legal or not, because libertarianism. And instead of using traditional payment methods, the buyers will pay in Bitcoin, so the transactions will be anonymous. And Ross is specifically thinking it would be a great marketplace for people to buy and sell marijuana and mushrooms. Instead of going to some seedy part of town to get these things, people would just order them up online from the safety of their home and have them delivered right to their door. And while Ross is working on developing this website, he's also creating the first product that will go up for sale. He's growing his own crop of hallucinogenic mushrooms right there in his office. Then finally, in January 2011, the Silk Road website launches, selling those mushrooms that he grew for Bitcoin. 
It doesn't take long for people to find the website and start buying the mushrooms and a handful of other drugs that other users are posting for sale. The whole setup for Silk Road was actually pretty ingenious. There was a rating system, similar to eBay's, and also a money release system. After the buyer paid for the merchandise, the funds were released to the seller until the buyer confirmed that the merchandise had arrived. Most of the drugs sold on Silk Road were sent through the regular old postal mail. Yes, through the postal mail. Ross even posted some articles on Silk Road that had tips on how to package the drugs so that they wouldn't be detected by the authorities. For each sale, Silk Road took a small percentage, in Bitcoin, of course, but Ross wasn't really interested in the money, and he actually cashed in very little of what he earned from Silk Road. He was doing it for a higher cause, the legalization of drugs. Maybe you've heard of a political campaign called the War on Drugs, which started with United States President Nixon in 1971, and it got a little boost by the Reagan administration in 1984. Part of the war on drugs is heavy sentences for dealers. But the war on drugs has not been terribly effective, and now we have prisons full of dealers, but no real change in drug usage. Ross was on a mission to show what it would look like to have a world where drugs, any drugs, would be legal to buy and sell and use. He envisioned a future where the government would step forward and say, hey, Ross, you're right. We should just let people take drugs if they want, and we should just regulate the manufacture and the quality and the sales of these drugs, and that way people would be safer. Russ really thought he was doing good by starting the Silk Road website and giving people the ability to buy and sell any drugs they wanted to. And at first, everything was going fine, but then things started to take a weird turn. The first unexpected turn for Silk Road was when sellers started putting harder drugs up for sale, like heroin. Heroin is considered to be one of the most addictive and damaging drugs known to mankind. It has ruined a lot of lives. So that was a bit of a turning point for the Silk Road website. It's one thing to sell plant-based drugs like marijuana and mushrooms, but it's quite another to sell heroin, ecstasy, crack, meth and other drugs that are produced through chemical processes. Ross decided in the end to allow these drugs on the site, still under his libertarian philosophy that the buyer should be able to decide what they want to put in their own body. So now we have an illegal marketplace where the founder, Ross, is raking in thousands of dollars worth of Bitcoin per day, and everything seems to be going fine. But... Sadly, whenever there is an illegal activity that generates huge amounts of money, it seems that violence is never far behind. Several months pass and business is booming on Silk Road. And like any good businessman, Ross hires a posse of people to help him with coding and customer service. And all of these people only know Ross by his online name, Dread Pirate Roberts, which is a reference to a character in the film, The Princess Bride. 
Ross knows the real names of everyone on his staff, but nobody on his staff knows Ross's real name or his identity. And almost all their communication is done through online chat. So Silk Road is bumping along, everything's going great. And then in June 2011, the news site Gawker posted an article about Silk Road talking about how you could buy anything there. Now, Gawker is no longer online as a site, but it used to be a place where you could find out about all this kind of really cool underground stuff. Now, this article causes a big boom to business, but at the same time, it also puts Silk Road in the crosshairs of several federal agencies like the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Administration, and the U.S. Secret Service, the FBI. They want Silk Road down. It's like a slap in the face that it's still up there. Now, meanwhile, more and more types of products are pouring into the Silk Road website, and Ross has even more difficult decisions to make. Should they allow people to sell unregistered guns? And what about poisons? And what about kidneys, <laughs> you know, internal organs? Or even uh, ads for murder for hire, should he allow those? So all these types of products and more start to show up for sale on Silk Road, and he's gonna decide which ones he's going to allow. Now, in the meantime, a DEA agent named Carl Forrest is posing as a big-time drug dealer on this chat app, going by the online handle Knob. And he manages to slide his way into Ross's DMs. So they strike up a little bit of a friendship, and they chat often. And Carl, or Knob, is hoping DPR will slip up and reveal something about his identity, but Ross never says anything about who he is. But still, the friendship does end up paying off in some other ways. The feds eventually identify one person in Ross's posse, a site administrator named Curtis Green. And Curtis lives in Utah. So in January 2013, the feds stake out Curtis's house, and they catch him receiving a large shipment of cocaine. Curtis is secretly arrested, and Curtis immediately rolls over and says, OK, I'll tell you everything I know. Curtis has access to all kinds of stuff like user accounts, and also to a bunch of Bitcoin that technically belongs to DPR. So you might think, all right, this is where it's all going to come to an end. But that's not what happens, because for one thing, Curtis doesn't know who Ross is. He doesn't know his real name. So at this point, Carl, he has sort of teamed up with a Secret Service agent named Sean Bridges. And they hatched this plot. The two agents use Curtis's access to Silk Road's accounts to transfer to themselves hundreds of thousands of dollars in Bitcoin. So they've basically stolen DPR's money. Brilliant, right? This is going to smoke out DPR. He's going to come out of the woodwork. Except for one thing. This is not a federally sanctioned sting operation. They just stole it and put it in their own bank accounts. Didn't tell anybody. That's not right, right? And if you think the story is starting to get weird, hang on, because... The ride is about to get a lot wilder. Of course, DPR immediately notices the missing Bitcoin. And of course, because of the activity on the account, he assumes that Curtis is the one who stole the Bitcoin. And it really 
really pisses him off. I mean, this has never happened. Nobody would steal from him. And Ross starts bitching about it to some of his closest chat friends, including Nob, who, remember, is Carl the DEA agent. And Nob offers to help in any way he can. So DPR asks Nob through this chat to go get the money back from Curtis. And he can even beat him up if he has to. Like, what? <laughs> These federal agents have stolen money from DPR. They framed Curtis for it. And now they've gotten DPR to hire them to go beat up the guy they framed to get the money back. Well, it, if this was a Hollywood movie, it would get terrible reviews because of this dumb and contrived plot that could never happen in real life. But um, it actually did. So what do Carl and Sean do at this point? They want to stay friends with DPR, keep him chatting, so maybe he'll reveal something about himself. So they come up with this plan. They stage this crazy scene where they fake beat up Curtis. And they take a bunch of photos to send to DPR. But they say they can't get the money back from Curtis. Curtis won't give it back. But of course, the reason Curtis isn't giving the money back is because Curtis didn't steal it. They have it in their own bank accounts, and they're not going to part with it. Now, remember, up until now, Curtis's arrest was a secret, but now word has gotten out and DPR has heard that Curtis was arrested, and he starts to get worried that the trail is going to lead back to him. So while chatting with another posse member, Variety Jones, DPR concludes that Curtis has to die. Otherwise, anybody would think they could steal from DPR without consequences, right? And that's not good for business. So this is just part of that whole cycle of illegal activity. DPR can't exactly go to the police and say, hey, this Curtis guy stole my money, or somebody stole my money, because he'd have to identify himself and also incriminate himself. So DPR's only recourse, he thought, was to have the guy knocked off to teach everybody a lesson. So through the chat app, DPR asks his buddy, Nob to do one more thing for him. DPR offers Nob $80,000 to kill Curtis. And remember, Nob is actually DEA agent Carl Force. At this point, I want to tell you that Curtis Green didn't actually die. The agents faked doing a hit on Curtis, and they took photos, and they collected the payment. But Curtis is alive and well, and actually he wrote a book about his experience. So back to our story. So after the fake hit on Curtis Green, DPR orders five more hits on other people who have done him wrong. And none of the hits are actually carried out. Nobody actually dies. But the hitmen provide false evidence that they killed these people, and DPR pays them. Some months go by. The feds are digging and digging, and eventually they connect enough dots to figure out who DPR is. They arrest Ross in October 2013, less than three years after he launched Silk Road. At his trial... Ross pled not guilty to several charges related to narcotic sales. There were no actual charges for the murder for hire, but the prosecution did bring up all the evidence regarding the murders during the trial to support the charge of narcotics conspiracy. Ross's stance was that at the time he was arrested, he was no longer operating as DPR, and that he had given the site away to someone. When asked who he gave it to, Ross said he didn't know because it was all done anonymously online. And he claims he didn't order the hit on Curtis Green or on anyone else. But court records show 
that the chat log information on his own laptop seized from his own hands during his arrest jives with the chats that ordered the hits. There has been a lot of discussion online and amongst my friends and colleagues about whether Ross really should have been convicted of drug trafficking. It would be like accusing eBay of fraud every time someone sold a fake product on their site. But since the very first product for sale on Silk Road was magic mushrooms that Ross personally grew in his own office, he couldn't argue that all he did was set up a marketplace. He himself was actually the first vendor, and when coupled with this information posted on the Silk Road website about how to package drugs for mailing through the postal service without detection, you know, this argument of, I am just an innocent service provider, doesn't really hold water. In 2013, Ross Ulbricht was sentenced to life in prison. There were several charges against him, but the charge of engaging in a continuing criminal enterprise was the big one there, worth a minimum of 20 years, all on its own. It's 2023 now, 10 years later, and we have to ask, was a life sentence warranted here? When I started researching this episode, I thought that a life sentence was fair, but now I'm not so sure. Is Ross Ulbricht likely to go out and reoffend? Probably not. Ross has expressed deep remorse for his actions and has apparently been a model prisoner, teaching math and science to his fellow inmates and raising hundreds of thousands of dollars for charities that help ex-cons and drug addicts. So that's it, folks, the highly abridged version of the Silk Road story. If you want to learn more about Ross Ulbricht, Ross's family set up a website, freeross.org. And if you want to learn more about the rise and fall of Silk Road, I highly recommend you check out the book American Kingpin by Nick Bilton. And if you leave a review for that book, be sure to tell them how Hacks Happen sent you. Thank you so much for coming on this little adventure with me. In between making episodes of How Hacks Happen, I wrote a book called The Art and Math of Cryptography. If you're a mathy-ish person who wants to learn more about how cryptography works under the hood, I think you'll like this book. It also makes a great gift for that friend of yours who's obsessed with cybersecurity. You can find The Art and Math of Cryptography at Amazon.com in Kindle, paperback, and hardcover formats. 